Welcome back to another exciting episode of the IT Curio Podcast, your source for technology insights and strategies. I'm Cameron Kenimer, a tech enthusiast with a background in sales, marketing, and IT. And today we have a captivating episode in store where we'll be exploring the world of cybersecurity and cloud computing, specifically tailored for small to medium-sized businesses. And I am joined, of course, by the IT wizard himself with over 30 years of experience, DJ Forbin. Get ready to level up your tech game, folks. Let's dive in and let's get Curio, IT Curio. DJ, how are you today? I'm doing pretty good, Cam. Thank you for asking. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. Pretty good. I'm excited to talk about IT, cybersecurity, and maybe help some businesses out there figure some things out. What do you, yeah, what do you think about that? that? Help some people. <laughs> there's, there's nothing better. Um, DJ, in today's increasingly interconnected world, cybersecurity obviously is a top concern for businesses. They want to safeguard sensitive data. They want to protect against cyber threats, small, medium-sized businesses. I mean, as well as larger businesses, but there's a lot more small to medium-sized businesses out there. And maybe they're not as equipped to deal with these problems as some of the others are. Maybe they don't have as many resources. So they really face some unique challenges when it comes to maintaining a strong cybersecurity posture. DJ, as our resident cybersecurity guru, <laughs> I'd love to hear your insights on how businesses can, you know, establish cybersecurity strategy. So one, what are the best practices for them to defend against all these crazy new threats out there? Uh, two, how can business owners effectively, you know, manage that and ensure that the data of their customers and their digital assets and just their overall security is going to be safe? And three, well, I guess that's enough for now. I don't want to overwhelm those questions. You're going to have to hit me with one question at a time. But so, you know, here's the trick. Let's, let's not beat around the bush. You're, there, there's no way to be 100% secure. There's no way to stop all possible attack. But there is a way to protect yourself against. One of the things that you can do is you can deploy a whole bunch of layers of security. You can hire a bunch of people to, to analyze all this stuff, all the data points that come in and all the, the stuff that happens and say, what's, an, what's a, an attack? What's an automated scan? Is somebody on the inside? Let's do some threat hunting and penetration testing. And you could just go down the list of things to do. And, and very quickly, it gets to be very expensive, very time consuming. And you, you get to this point where you're having to measure what's the difference. Like if I spend an extra $50,000, does that get me 99.8% secure versus 99.7% secure? And so you, you start playing these little games. How much money does it make sense? And then you have to mix in the security compliance concerns. You know, you know everyone in, in has heard of HIPAA, right, for healthcare. But there's a slew of others. You know, there's one for credit cards. There's one for pretty much everything you can think of. There's several for the Department of Defense. There's NIST, which is kind of the baseline standard that most people stick with. If, even if you're not forced to be compliant to any specific compliance rules or, or laws, privacy laws is, you know, is a good one to think of, then that's usually the framework that people go with. And what you should really do is you should choose the low-hanging fruit first, the biggest one. What we strongly recommend is 
what is absolutely required are three things. One is endpoint protection. A lot of people used to say antivirus. Technology and those solutions have gone a little farther than that. There's a little more complexity to them. So we call it endpoint protection because it, it bundles in a few different things like walking the network, not just looking for a file that's being a bad file of a Trojan or some kind of other virus, right? The second one is MFA, multi-factor authentication, sometimes called 2FA or two-factor authentication. Uh, the base behind that is it's something you have, right? Your device, the little token that scrolls through the, the six-digit, seven-digit numbers or an application on your phone, right? That's the something you have. And it's something you know, which is the password. So that's layer two. And layer, layer three is advanced email protection because it's the number one attack vectors coming in via phishing email. So those are the three big ones that you really should consider to be bare minimum. That's what you've got to do. Now, there's layers beyond that. And those layers aren't just a cost line item in terms of monthly software licensing costs, but also the, I like to say the care and feed, care and feeding, <laughs> I like to say the care and feeding that is required, right? So you, you have these tools in place. Let's say you have penetration testing in place. What that's going to do is that's going to scan the outside of the network. It's going to scan the inside of the network. And it's going to find things or maybe something that needs to be patched. Maybe there's a hole in a firewall. Maybe there's a device that's just not configured properly and is wide open to the world. You know, there's, and, and there's two different types of penetration testing. There's penetration test scanning, um, which is what most people really need, does exactly what I described. Then there's the human penetration testing, and that's where an actual person gets behind this and will actually try to take advantage of any of these holes that are found. That's on right. another level. That is a massive cost. The other sure. one, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, you know, one of the things maybe I wonder if that deters people from, you know, taking these precautions. Myself, I remember times when I got quite frustrated with all the different passwords that I had to have and the constantly changing passwords. And I remember thinking, man, is it really necessary to create all of this trouble? I mean, that was before I got into to all of this and, you know, really saw, you know, how important it is. But I think, you know, there might be a perspective out there where business owners maybe and, you know, business managers might not want to deal with this because they just see it as a hassle and they don't understand how important it is. But there's some new things that have come down the pipeline, like you're talking about the password, the, the multi-factor authentication and some of the apps that you can get on your phone to help you with that. And they have completely passwordless ways to, to go now that are a lot simpler than, than it used to be. Isn't that true? It's absolutely true. There's a lot of different ways that people can get in. You can put all these security measures into place, but if there's a vulnerability that bypasses all of them, then what's the point really? Or even if you have all these layers in, in your security onion, what happens when the person using the computer still clicks on something that they shouldn't have? And what happens when what they click on doesn't get caught by all the tools that you have in place? That's the term zero day, something that nobody knows about, something that hasn't been categorized and, and, and turned into a, a clear definition or a little, you know, checksum so that you can go and see, hey, has anybody else seen this? Then, you know, virus total is a great way to check against what all the other vendors in the world are doing and what they're aware of. And so that's, that, that happens quite a bit. And it's, uh, it can be a disheart little disheartening, but that's exactly why we always, why, why our mantra is to talk about, let's do what's reasonable. Let's do what's realistic and understand the fact that you've got to have a certain comfort level with ambiguity. You're not going to know everything necessarily. 
people have this concept that, oh, the server can just tell me what everybody did at any moment. Servers don't do that by default. You've got to set that up and oftentimes use special software. So it's, a, it, it's, it's tough to know where that line is. And that's why you need to engage with a professional group that will help you make those decisions, who has the experience, who has been through it a few times. It doesn't mean that everyone's always right. And so that's why people, you'll, you'll hear professional organizations say, even if you have a great team of internal IT people or external IT people, always use a third party to double check that once a year. That's, you know, that's, that's the honest truth. And it's, it's, it's a little tart, it's a little, little unpalatable. It's hard to take that, but that's the internet. That's what it's become. It's right. still a little bit of the wild west out there. DJ, I'd like to shift our focus to the cloud a little bit now and how that relates to security, maybe ways that might be helpful to businesses and the pluses and minuses of it versus, you know, having your equipment on site in a more traditional manner. The cloud offers businesses a flexible, more scalable infrastructure, I think, enabling them to basically streamline their operations and to enhance self-efficiencies. And it's becoming more of a part of the modern business landscape. Can you talk a little bit about that? I know that you are very well versed in cloud computing. Can you share with us how small to medium-sized businesses can use these cloud solutions, whether or not they should or not, you know, what are the considerations to help them, you know, either improve operations or save money? If, if that's even a thing, what, what are some of those considerations to adopting cloud technologies and what should business owners do to make the right choices? So we talk with people about this a lot, practically on a daily basis, definitely on a weekly basis. People often have the idea that they're going to move all their stuff to the cloud and it's going to be by default more secure. And the biggest fallacy is less expensive. What people need to understand is what you're doing is you're shifting your expenditures from capital expenditure, CapEx, to operational expenditure, OPEX. That's the value proposition of most SaaS, S-A-A-S, right? The software as a service. Sometimes people say security as a service that sometimes gets used interchangeably. But in this context, we're talking about software as a service, QuickBooks Online, Microsoft 365, Gmail, all that's cloud-based applications that are available to you and on their infrastructure. Very important to note that that's, it's not what Everybody, so, or it's not what a lot of people believe it is. It's not necessarily by default more secure, and it's not necessarily by default more more cost effective. Because what you end up having to do is you end up having to pay these monthly costs for the same kind of protection. The one of the the big fallacies that people believe is that oh they are much more secure. Well, to a certain extent, that's not entirely inaccurate thinking. However doesn't, it's not as robust as people think that it is. So let's say, for example, you want to put your web page up in Amazon Web Service. By default, yes, the system comes with some really basic security and firewall protection. But if you want to do, as example, have a web access, a WAF, a web access firewall, WAF, that's a different product. That's not something that's free. And it's, it's important, especially if you have a website that's like a shopping website or has any kind of dynamic content in it or any kind of scripting in it, you're going to want to have a WAF in place. That's an additional cost. And, and so, you know, there's things like that to consider. 
But then there's also the bandwidth consumption issue that comes into play. It's very often, it's difficult to judge how much traffic is going to go to a site. There's a lot of people who can do a lot of analysis for you on that web developers and, and people of that nature. And there's even tools inside some of these hosting solutions, whether it's Azure or, or Amazon or whoever else, you know, you might want to host with. Those are the two biggest ones. They have tools that talk about that, but that's a little bit like the fox watching the hen house because they're the ones that made the tool. So, right. I'm not saying that they're liars. I'm not saying they're trying to cheat anybody, but you know, the house always wins. <laughs> sure. Absolutely. So those are the things to consider is you, you don't just assume a lot of this stuff. Talk to your provider, talk to us, reach out to us. We'll gladly talk to people about it all day long. Even if you have another provider, we don't mind. We like to make relationships. We like to meet people. No problem. Perfect. DJ, another topic that keeps popping up every time I'm browsing online is something called ZTNA. And I think there's a lot of businesses out there who might be wondering what the heck that is. Is this something that I should be looking at? Is this something that I should be implementing for my business? Could you explain to us what the heck that is, zero trust, why that's beneficial, and if it's something important for business owners to consider? So zero trust or ZTNA, zero trust network architecture, all great stuff. It's not actually new. That terminology is new. Definitely better than what we used to say. We used to say things like closed, closed. That doesn't ha that doesn't roll off the tongue at all. Zero trust, though, that definitely gets people's attention. And so the basic idea is this. Everything is closed except for the doors that you need to have open. It's granular down to a specific individual. So the HR person is going to have holes open to them, doors open to them that the front desk staff won't have, obviously. And so that's really the, the basic concept is that you have nothing at all available so that even if a bad actor were to get inside the network, unless they had, you know, elevated credentials of some type, they wouldn't be able to see anything. Let's say you have a contractor who comes into your office and maybe they're a bad actor. You know, most people are pretty straightforward and they're professional. You know, it's, there's not that many bad guys, if you will, running around doing, you know, this kind of stuff, but it does exist, of course. And the zero trust architecture is the, really the best way to protect yourself. Now, here's the problem. Is it the best possible way to go? Absolutely. Is it the cheapest way to go? Most cost effective? No, it is, can be very, very time. The thing that you have to consider is not just deploying the software, paying the cost of the software, and then having your IT staff look through all these logs and if something bad happens, they take action. You also have to factor in management time, staff time, and that level of, of labor overhead because it creates work for people. So if let's say we're a, a DLP solution, data loss prevention solution is deployed and it's going through the network and it's finding where all the data is. And I like to say the who, what, where, and why of it, right? Who accessed it, when they accessed it, where do they access it, all that good stuff. When that happens, the IT people aren't necessarily going to know how should this data that we found be classified? Maybe it's innocuous. Maybe it's not important or, or, or not, you know, intellectual property or, or data that has to be kept private. Maybe it was totally fine. That determination has to be made by the users, the managers, the ownership of the company. The IT person by default is not going to know that. Now, if somebody opens a file and it's got a bunch of social security numbers in it, that one's pretty obvious. And a lot of stuff is not necessarily straightforward. DJ, one of the benefits of folks working with another company to handle their IT 
management is that they actually have a team of people to help them. Can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. So one of the most important things to consider with your IT is, can you do it in-house? And for most small to medium business businesses, the answer is no, the budget doesn't exist. For or maybe you've hired your, your brother's nephew's cousin, who's an IT guy, or maybe you've hired a fella who was working at Apple for the last 25 years and does a little work on the side. Or maybe you know a lady who was doing security work over at VMware and she comes in and, and handles all of your, your IT needs as, as they come. That's how a lot of people handle it because that's what they can afford. And we understand that, you know, cost is a factor here. We, yes, we want to be secure. Yes, we want to keep our systems up and running. But at the end of the day, the computer is a tool like a, like a hammer or a vehicle or any other type of tool that you might be using in your business. It's just a tool to get your actual job done. And you don't want to have to spend Great. all day working you know, on that tool. And so that's where companies come in. You know, it's a full-blown managed IT department. We'll be on site as much as needed, 24-7 support as needed, so people can get that enterprise class of service without having to spend the enterprise class of money. I like that. That's great. DJ, worst case scenario, measures that people take to prevent attacks data breaches, they fail. What the heck are you going to do in that situation? Tell us what happens next. Business continuity, disaster recovery, BCDR. That is the term that's used to talk about backups, ter the term that's used to talk about how are we going to get the company up and running again if the worst happens. And best way to do that is to have robust backups that have a long history. So you want a lot of retention is what you want. So what we recommend is BCDR solution from Datto, and we've been using them very successfully for quite some time. There are many vendors uh, for BCDR, so nobody's locked into choosing just one. But the basic idea is this. You've got a device that's inside the network. That device is in essence a, a server, like a really beefy server. It has to have the capability to be able to have the right amount of CPU, RAM, and storage to run your other servers if they die. So this is a really robust server. Now, we take snapshots, image snapshots. That's a term that gets used a lot in virtualization and can be a little bit misunderstood, but there's two main kinds. There's image backups and file and folder backups. File and folder backups are great. That's your data. You have that backed up, that's wonderful. You can rebuild servers, install all the software, you know, get new hardware if, if that's what's necessary, if there was some sort of, you know, environmental issue, a fire or a flood or anything of that nature. But that takes time. That takes a lot of time. And so what ends what what the reason that you've got a solution in place where there's a device on premise is if something pops within 15, 20, 30 minutes, you can fire up that server on, on the backup from a few hours ago and have it actually running on your backup device. There's business continuity, a server backup and running within an hour, pretty potent story, pretty powerful. Most people wouldn't even know that there was a problem. Business continues as usual. If you have just file and folder backup though, that takes a lot more time. That's gonna take a few days at least. You gotta get the replacement hardware, reinstall all the software, import the, the data back into the programs. There's a lot more work to that. Is, is it cheaper? Yeah, it's definitely cheaper. It costs less money. In this case, you get what you pay for. And in my opinion, my professional and personal opinion, it's not so much cheaper that it's worth that time. But it's easy for me to spend other people's money. You have to make that decision for yourself. We'll show you what the options are and we'll take it from there. Now, 
the other part of that is, okay, what if there's a real bad emergency and the whole building goes down for whatever reason, fire, flood, any number of, of things that can happen and, and have and do happen. So that's why these systems have to stream these backups. If you don't have that piece of it, then you're, you're out of luck. So every day, these backups that are taken throughout the day, consider them to be like a snapshot of the entire server, all the software, everything that's running on it, all the data. That gets all streamed up to the cloud. So if there is a really bad disaster of some type, you can actually run your servers out of the cloud and you could be back up and running in just, you know, four, maybe five hours on average. It depends on, you know, how big your infrastructure is, how many servers there are, how many users are out in the field. There's a, there's a cost, there's a recovery time calculator that we can use to help determine that. And that's how you make that decision as to which of these solutions do you really want to roll out. And it's entirely dependent on how fast you need to be back up and running and what's the cost of not being up and running. So it's really a, very much a cost calculation. Putting those systems in place has a really interesting side effect. That's just all for backups, right? Well, what about if you have files that get encrypted? What if you get hit with a ransomware attack and a bunch of information gets encrypted? Really the same purpose. You can just go to your backups and roll back to the time before the infection or the attack occurred and then get the data that you know, from that point in time, and you essentially erase the attack. Now, that's not to imply that there's not more steps needed if there is a cybersecurity attack. There's many, many steps along the way to remediate that. But having a solid BCDR solution in place, business continuity, disaster recovery, those are the two big, big things. We used to call it backup disaster recovery, but really the industry has matured and now it's all about, you know, business continuity. It's a resonates with people a little bit more clearly than just a backup because it's more than just a backup. EJ, thank you for covering that. It's a really great explanation. And I think that it is great that people have a resource like, like you to be able to help them navigate all the different choices that are out there. Besides recovering their systems in a cybersecurity attack, businesses would also have other obligations to perhaps customers or put right. people who's information had been leaked. Is that correct? Right. So the, in the case of when we talk about all the other things that have to do to come back from, from a disaster, there's a lot, a lot of client communication that is sometimes legally required, depending on there, if it was a security incident. Um, so there's costs related to that. Having a system in place that, that measures your data, having an agent-based data loss prevention system in place is very critical for that. Because if you don't have that and something happens, you won't know who was exposed. And I can tell you what happens in that case is that the default legally is you have to inform everybody. If you can't define, if you can't define who was attacked or what was taken, then you have to assume everything was. And that gets to be very expensive. There's actually some really interesting notification laws tied in mostly to privacy, privacy laws of various states that can total tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars in just communication costs, because you can't do it a super, you have to do it like with registered mail. And it's, it's, it can be a nightmare in some cases and very expensive. So it's not just a matter of getting things back online. It's a matter of clearing the board so that you can deal with that. 
reach out to cybersecurity insurance if there, if that was the incident. You've got to reach out to the the IC3 website for reporting incidents to the FBI. Then report it to local law enforcement. Then you're, you know, if this is something that's going to be a claim that you make, then cyber insurity, your cybersecurity insurance underwriters are going to come in with their own legal team and their own forensics team. And that's going to usually have a cost. And then depending on how your policy is written, you I have to be very cautious about that. It used to be really easy to get cyber insurance. You could just call up your provider, check a few boxes, 15 minutes later, it's added. It's a rider added to your existing policy. It's super easy. What happened, a lot of these companies had to pay out very large settlement and they realized we didn't even ask a single question. We didn't do any due diligence of any kind. We just were happy to collect that free money, if you will, and have that business, but then they got burned. So... Not to disparage the insurance companies. I don't want anybody coming for it. That is what happened. And for better or for worse, now what they're doing is a little bit of a knee-jerk reaction, but that's to be expected after hundreds of millions of dollars have been paid out, is that you now have to, at the very minimum, they give you this checklist. And then that checklist is all kinds of questions. Do you have these various security solutions in place? You know, do you have written policies, incident response policies? Do you do training once a year? Do you do, you know, it's a litany of questions that are usually reserved for companies that have specific compliance concerns like HIPAA for healthcare or PCI DSS for credit cards or, or NIST if you work with the Department of Defense or any government agency. All these things have a long list. They're very similar, but but there's some differences between them. And now you got to check all these boxes as if you're compliant to one of those standards. Right. That's the world that we live in now. If you haven't been hit with yeah. it now, you will be hit with it at your next renewal. DJ, there's a saying that's, uh, that goes, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. One of the things that we do offer is free cybersecurity awareness training for businesses. And I know you've had experience with that before and you're really good at it. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about how you try to structure those classes so that they're a little bit more fun than some of the other options that are out there for businesses. Yeah. Look, cybersecurity is maybe fun for me to talk about, but for most people, it just bores them to death. And it, you know, they just get, they get it drilled into them all the time, but they get drilled a lot of weird information or very antiquated information gets, gets put into people's minds. So what I try to do is I try to make it modernized. I try to make it relevant. I'll, I'll usually say some very inflammatory things like when there's been a cyber incident, who do you blame? Your IT department, right? No. You, sure, if somebody made a mistake, yeah, but it's you, the individual. That's who's to blame here. Now, that's inflammatory. That's meant to make people go away. It's absolutely designed to have that effect as well it should. But it's a team effort in reality is what it is. The only way for... You know, the, the team is only as strong as the weakest link. And most of the time, people who are out there doing their job, they're not computer people. They're not super geeks. They don't know how it all works. They send an email. They don't understand everything that happens behind that to get it to where it needs to be. Nor should they. I don't understand what they do for their job either. Nor should I. There's, you know, there's a, there's a line there. And it's very, it's a very nebulous line because now everyone needs to be a little bit more aware of cyber. So try to make it a little bit more interesting, try to make it so it's, you know, not people, you know, falling asleep, rolling their eyes in the back of their head. We try to throw a little bit of magic and shock in there so that people are, you know, awakened. I'm by no means a sleight of hand magician or anything like that, but we'll throw, we actually have to throw a little magic into our presentations, especially when we do them in person. 
things like that that will that will really engage them. But the most important part is that I'm not going to talk to you about what you can do nothing about. I'm not going to talk to you about firewalls. I'm not going to talk to you about penetration testing and data loss prevention. Blah, 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 blah is all you're going to hear when I talk about that. What you really need right. to hear is what you can actually control, what you can actually do something about and take action on. And that's mostly going to center around email and web browsing. And so that's the focus is that we get people to understand what are the red flags? What should I be paying attention to? What should make me uncomfortable? What should make me nervous? And, and what's normal? What to expect, you know, from, from normal interaction, like so that you don't get that email from someone pretending to be the IT department saying, oh, we need your password. I think by now, most people are, off, are, are clued in that no one in IT is ever going to call you and ask for you for your password. We might call you if we know you, if we're working on something. That doesn't come in through email, through some automated process. And, and then right. it's a portal that you click on and then say, oh, just type in your path. Like, those are huge red flags. That's the low-hanging fruit, right? But there's more to it than that. There's some really crafty stuff out there. And so that's what we try to focus on in our training is, here's what's been happening now, this year, this month, this quarter. Here's what's happened historically. And here's what you can do about it. And we try to make it fun as much as anything like this can be. That's a much better approach than watching videos and then filling out questionnaires at the end. People aren't really even paying attention to those. They're looking at their phone. And then at the end, you know, there's a multiple choice questionnaire and they'll fill it out. And the one they weren't paying attention, so they get a bunch wrong, but then they can just go back in and take it over again until they get all the questions right. They didn't learn anything. You know, the way that you teach, I think, is very engaging. People are going to be able to retain, actually retain the information and have a much better experience than folks who are just sitting there watching videos. I agree. The video route has its place, but it should not be considered the, the main way to educate people and, and, and get people to have security awareness. It's one element that has to be used in conjunction with several other things. And that includes in-person training, phishing testing, add that video training in there, but then ongoing reinforcement all throughout the year. Sometimes that takes the form of a company newsletter. Sometimes that takes the form of during phishing testing, somebody clicks on something they should have. They immediately get a reply from the system that shows them the email they clicked on. But it's, you know, like wireframe, it's marked up. It's got little flags and says, hey, here's a red flag. And a little window will say, this is why this is something you should have paid attention. Coca-Cola.com is not spelled with the letter, or it was not spelled with ones and zeros, right? So people will replace the L with a one or replace the, the O with a zero. That kind of stuff. Doppelganger domains is, is a term I like to use for that. They're very similar looking, but not. This. Happens all the time. And so, you know, little things like that. People go, oh, right, right. It's, it's for a geek, it's easy, especially when you talk about that kind of stuff. We, we understand there's a major difference between an L and a one and an I. Visually on the screen, there might, it might not be much difference, but they're absolutely different in terms of what the computer looks at and sees. Not everybody gets that, unfortunately, but nor should they, frankly. That's the big, that's the big thing here is, you know, we work with a lot of doctors and a lot of lawyers, very educated, very smart people. They don't really know much about their computers. I mean, I'm a human. I have a body. I go to the doctor, but does that mean I should know everything that the doctor's doing when they take my blood test and they send it off? That's magic. I don't know how that works. What's I, with cybersecurity has it has been much the same. It's kind of like it's magic. I don't know how it works, but 
we've gotten to the point now where we need to be more aware. Pretty much, very similar in, in healthcare these days, to be honest, you really have to be your own advocate. And I'm gonna say it's the same with cybersecurity. You really need to be your own advocate. Absolutely. I think that's a wrap. That concludes another information-packed episode of the IT Curio podcast. We hope you've gained some valuable insights, some actionable tips for your business. Remember, staying ahead in the digital era requires continuous learning and change. Be sure to visit our website, itcurio.com, where you can register for our free live cybersecurity awareness training program hosted by this amazing man, DJ Foreman, to protect your business. Thanks for tuning into the show. And until next time, stay curious and embrace technology. Thank you very much.